Was Jesus really tempted to sin? That's the question we're discussing today on The Hero of the Story, presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you focus on the gospel in every area of your life and ministry. I'm Aaron Armstrong, brand manager of The Gospel Project, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik, our managing editor. So, Brian, today we are looking at, uh, you know, a nice light story that comes out of Luke chapter 4. The story, the events that happen after Jesus was baptized and um, his identity was announced and we see this this glorious vision of uh of the trinity um appearing where the where the father declares uh his love for for the son and the spirit has descended upon him like a dove um at the end of that in in Luke 4 we see him taken uh from there and into the wilderness where he remains for 40 days and and after he is is there he is tempted yeah, and the Gospels link these both together, even though, you know, you're reading your Bible and, man, I, I'm so grateful for headings of different stories in, in the text and so forth. But sometimes they can kind of hurt us because we kind of parse things, we kind of divide things. Okay, that's over. Now, here's a new part. The Gospel writers connect these two events carefully as we should. We should really think of them as one kind of comprehensive event because they both achieve the same really important purpose, and that is to reveal that Jesus is the worthy Messiah who had come. So the baptism begins that, and then this temptation that we're going to look at today continues that. This event also provokes some questions that we should be asking. Of course, there's the question that we opened up this episode with, which was, was Jesus really tempted to sin? And and then there's its kid brother, which is, uh, could Jesus really have sinned at all? Oh, that kid brother. Kid I mean, brothers are always troublemakers, and he makes a lot of trouble. But it's a fascinating thought exercise to go is. through. It is. And, uh, and, and so that really leads us into, uh, before, in, into some questions that we should be asking um, in this passage, shouldn't it? Um, we're going to hold those, those two yeah. for a little we'll, bit longer. We'll, come, we'll bring those up at the end. That's right. Um, that's, uh, again, that in the biz is what we call a tease. But... <laughs> Um, but, but before we get there, um, a question I think that is, is worth us asking in of Luke chapter 4 um, and this account is, why did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted at all? What was the point of this? Yeah, and that's a great question, and, and we shouldn't look past it because the answer is, is so important. It was God's will. Mm-hmm. Um, this was God's desire. The Father's desire was for the Son to endure temptation by Satan, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Um, and the reason, again, it goes back to what the baptism and this temptation account are really all about. It is to reveal to the world that Jesus is the worthy Savior And this one, I think, is so helpful to think back to Adam in Eden and see how these are compared and contrasted events. So where Adam was tempted in a lush, perfect garden and gave into that temptation and failed and brought sin into the world, here we see Jesus, who is tempted in a barren wilderness, but withstand the temptation 
and he is proving himself to be the greater Adam, the, the new Adam who come or the second Adam who had come and will succeed where the first Adam failed. And so this is, you can see when you understand that, you can understand why it was God's pleasure for Jesus, not only to go without food for 40 days, but to endure this tempting, this temptation from Satan. And this this account really uh, sets up the contrast that Paul makes in Romans about yeah. the first set, the first Adam and the last Adam, and how uh, where the one failed, the other, uh, where the first failed, the 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 second Jesus succeeded, and it's it's just so so powerful to see again how Scripture works together to um, explain itself and explain what God was doing throughout history. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think another question is, what was the root of Satan's three temptations? Right. And you look at those temptations and you're like, okay, I, I can't, they, they, I don't relate with them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get hungry at times, but it's not up to me to turn rocks into bread. Um, I'm not going to be walking along the temple's, you know, pinnacle of the temple anytime soon. And so we kind of look at those and say, can I connect with those? Well, actually we can, if we understand what was at the root of each of those three temptations, basically was Satan saying to Jesus, here, I've got a different path than God's will. Will you circumvent God's plan and do this? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that is interesting here is, is that in and of themselves, with the exception of one, there is nothing inherently wrong with wanting to feed yourself. Yes. And there's nothing inherently wrong with, um, wanting to avoid harm you know of course there is uh there's one of the one of these temptations that is so obviously and blatantly wrong that um yeah that you can't not say it's ridiculous but even then underneath it there is an appeal to jesus's humanity and in all of these there's an appeal to jesus's humanity remembering that jesus is both fully man and fully god all the time, a hundred percent of the time. And, um, and so he, so yeah, he is appealing to his hunger. He's appealing to his, um, desire to be physically safe as well. Um, in, you know, in the temptation regarding being on the pinnacle of the temple in the third one as well, though, there is, there is an appeal as well to kind of safety and comfort yeah. as well because Jesus came to die <laughs> and yeah. Jesus was given and this was kind of the easy way out to get what was already Jesus's. Yeah, and that's how, you know, we can step into these temptations and again the specific ones we may not be able to relate with, but the general idea of will we trust God's way? Will we trust God or will we trust our own way or another way? And at times even that way may make sense to us. Or there may not be anything inherently wrong with an action, but if we are doing anything apart from God's will or not trusting in him, then there is a problem. So because of that, when we look at these temptations, I think we all can and should recognize, wait a minute, we have the same question to ask of us. Will I trust God or not? As we look at Luke's account of this, we we also can look at the account that's provided in Matthew, and we do see an important difference there, which is uh, that temptations two and three are in rever in the reverse order. So um, instead of in instead of where Luke set, Luke has 
the temptation to turn a stone into bread, then the temptation to worship, to be given the entire world as long as he was willing to compromise his worship of God. Um, and then finally throwing himself off of the, the pinnacle of the temple um, where Matthew has the, has the bread, then the temple, and then worship. And so one of the natural questions there is, is why? And of course, we need to, and there are multiple answers to this. I mean, one is, is that uh, we do remember that the gospels themselves are not strict biographies. And so uh, chronology is not as important within the gospels as is the the theological purpose behind the author's writing. With Matthew, for example, he was pointing to how Jesus fulfilled, like really was the, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and to David, that he was that he was that long-awaited Messiah from their lineage, where Luke was doing something a little bit different. He doesn't discount that, but he is he's he's expanding that view and saying that this is that this messiah is um not just not not just the the king but he is but he is the 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 point of worship and he is the only one to be worshiped um and it's it's much bigger he drives he points way more often to the relationship between uh the people and the temple and contrasting uh, Jesus with the temple far more often than any of the other gospel writers do, and and there's something important there for that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as as you're reading through Luke's gospel, he, you know, everything's driving toward Jerusalem, um, the action, the narrative, the journeys, and so forth. And so Jerusalem is is kind of positioned as the the end, if you will, of of what's going on there. And so it makes sense then that he inspired by the Holy spirit would put the temple as the third and final of these temptations. Again, the action, even in this vignette is driving to Jerusalem to the temple. So it makes sense that he would do that. And again, what you said earlier, I think Aaron is so important that we keep in mind that um, gospels being not biographies, having biographical elements to them, but they're not strict biographies. We, We should not stress over chronology, um, unless there is an error because of it says, you know, he did this, then he did that. And that's not the way it happened. Then that would be problematic, but that's not what it does. It just simply presents these, these events in sometimes loose chronology and sometimes a little bit stricter chronology, such as the birth narratives up front and the death and resurrection in the end. Um, but in between the chronology is not nearly as important as long as we remember that, then I think it explains these things. You know, sometimes, um, skeptics will consider this an error in scripture. And again, that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's not, it's not an error, um, because they simply present three that happened. They all happened, but neither say this is the definitive order they happened in. And so that, that's how we know, no, this is not an error. I think another important question is how Jesus responded to each temptation. While we looked at the, the root of the temptations that Satan provided, Jesus' response is also really fascinating. He quotes scripture every time. And, you know, it's so important that we see him standing on God's 
word. It's an encouragement to us, a reminder to us. But what's even more fascinating is when we understand he quoted from Deuteronomy every single time. Deuteronomy is probably not the go-to book of people when they're trying to find life versus to put on coffee mugs. And so for us to think, man, I don't know what you mean by that. I <laughs> it's every life verse is is from, from Deuteronomy. Book. Yes. So, I mean, it's just encouraging that Jesus would use three passages from Deuteronomy to stand on. It's a, an incredible encouragement and a joy to see and be remember or to be reminded of that truly all the scripture is indeed inspired by God and profitable. Jesus demonstrates that in this temptation account. You ready for the big two questions? Oh, I'm there. And this is this is what we've been we've been building toward this moment where where the gospels are building toward uh, driving to Jerusalem this week. This question was Jesus really tempted to sin? Well, go ahead and answer and, it for everybody. I'm just about to. The answer <laughs> is yes. Yes, he was really tempted to sin. Remember, he is fully God and fully man. Being fully man means that he really had to be able to be tempted to sin in every way that we are in order to fulfill his purpose as our substitute. Um, as as the one who compl- who fulfilled the law for us and who died in our place, he had to he had to experience the same kinds of things that we do. Yeah. And so the question really isn't was Jesus really tempted to sin. The the question is that other that other question, the one that we jokingly called the kid brother, that causes so much pro- so many problems. The question is if he could have sinned. So sinned. So it's not a question of temptation. It's a it's a question of ability. Yeah. And that's this is the thing as you're saying that he was tempted. The scriptures are clear about that. Uh, we read in scriptures that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted as we have. So that is, that is not the question. It's this one that really want you. Okay. He really was tempted. This question naturally raises up. Could he then have sinned? There are two fancy theology words that we'll use in this episode, just because I think they're important enough to at least hear once or twice in your life. And it's an issue of peccability or impeccability. Peccability is the belief that he could have sinned, that Jesus was peccable. Impeccability is that he could not have sinned. Now, I think let's just talk about why they each are thrown out there. And I don't think it's up to us to resolve this. I think it's up to everybody to kind of um, consider it on your own, come to your own conclusion and have grace with the other camp. Mm -hmm. The peccability camp would say, well, of course he could have sinned or else it's not a true temptation. If you're saying he's impeccable, he could not have sinned, then he really wasn't tempted to sin. You can't be tempted to do something that's not possible to do. Mm-hmm. The impeccability camp would say, well, that's a good point. However, if he could have sinned then, is he still peccable today? Can he sin now? Because God is unchanging, if you will. And and so if he could have sinned then, then what, what happens if he sins now? And if he sins now, then he's no longer a worthy sacrifice. Everything comes undone. So no, he could not have sinned then. He has to be impeccable. Those are the two big ideas that, that butt heads with one another. Aaron, what's your solution of that? I think my solution to that really is to 
be confident and clear and firm on what scripture says clearly. <laughs> That's w wisdom. Yes. And then you can see both sides of it. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. One of the, but one of the other things that you can point to is, is on the question of could Jesus sin now is you also have to remember that Jesus is in his glorified state. Yes. Yes. And so because Jesus is in his glorified state, it actually isn't possible for him to yeah. sin now because in our glorified state, sin is our sin nature is entirely removed from us. And, and that's not saying that Jesus had a sin nature. Unlike the rest of us, Jesus was the only, no, yep. is the only one who had the actual choice of whether or not to based on in the same way that the first Adam did again, going back to going back to that contrast. Um, but the rest of us are all slaves to sin according to according to scripture so yeah. that mean and guys here's what that means just because i know that's a trigger that's a trigger statement all that means is that we willingly and joyfully love sinning way more than we love anything else by nature Yes, it's our natural inclination. Yes, we want to sin above all other things. And because we want to sin above all other things, we naturally do not want to please God. That's why the that's why the new covenant's purpose is to give us new hearts that are made of yeah. flesh and not of stone. Um, the stone heart is the dead slave, uh, uh, sin enslaved heart. Yep. Okay, so... Jesus didn't have that. He didn't have that as uh, in his time on earth pre-crucifixion. He doesn't have it now. The difference between then and now is that he is he is in the state that we look forward to being in in the new creation with him. Which means that just as we will not sin in the new creation, he does not sin yeah. now as the glorified Christ. And, and and I think what makes this easier to kind of wrap our, our minds around is we know the father, for example, the father cannot sin. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the question is often raised, well, can God do anything? And some people wrongly say, well, yeah, he can. No, not quite. When we talk about his omnipotence, for example, that is not his ability to do anything. He can do anything within his character um, and anything that he has promised to do. So God, it's not in God's character to sin. So God cannot sin. God cannot lie. Scripture says that clearly. So we have to understand what it means when we say that God is omnipotent, for example. So I think if we remember that, then it's, it's not a stretch to kind of get our arms around Jesus here as we're discussing big idea again as, as we've tried to lead in this is an interesting theological question that I think mm -hmm. merits some thinking and, and and I don't think we're wrong to explore it and kick it around I would not necessarily lead this in discipleship 101 with somebody um, but I think you know there is a place for it but don't let it get you tripped up um, you know dive into it wade into it whatever you want to do but don't let this one get you tripped up now the question that we do need to hang our hats on of course is this one which is how does this point us to the gospel so brian how about you yeah. how about you take the lead on that I, I think this one again when we remember the point of the baptism 
and the temptation of Jesus, and they both were to reveal that he is the perfect sinless sacrifice. This is reminding us of his sinlessness. This is reminding us that he was a worthy sacrifice to be made on the sins of others, on behalf of the sins of others. Then this takes us to the cross. It takes us to the empty tomb. It takes us to the core of the gospel, um, that he was above and beyond sufficient for paying for our sins because he was sinless himself. So let's think about this passage from a discipleship perspective. Uh, What kind of guidance would we offer someone who is, is working through this passage with another person or other persons? Yeah, I think the first is one that we've said before that that we see the value of knowing and using scripture. I think both of those, knowing what scripture says and bringing it to bear appropriately as Jesus does here. Again, he quoted from Deuteronomy each time. Mm -hmm. So we see that not only did Jesus know the scriptures that deeply that he knew these passages from Deuteronomy, but he knew how to apply them rightly. That's so important as well. We see so many people either unintentionally or sometimes intentionally misrepresent scripture because they're not applying it properly. They're using it out of context. Um, this is an encouragement to us to do that. It's an encouragement for us to memorize scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus didn't say, hold on Satan, let me go find a copy of the, you know, God's word and let me try to find something to respond to you. He immediately responded because it was in his mind and heart. So while I struggle personally, to be honest, I struggle with memorizing scripture. It's not easy for me. This passage and others reminds me of the importance of doing that. Yeah, and and just on that too, I think I think something that that we should remember for uh, for ourselves when it comes to seeking to memorize scripture is it's okay to paraphrase. Yeah. So I mean, you see this you see this in scripture even where people will say there's something like this that says x <laughs> um yep. or i think i think it says something i think i think this is uh, this is about what it says you see how it's how it's quote how the scriptures are quoted in the new testament they're not exact word for word uh restatements and and that's okay too yeah um we just and so don't worry that much if you don't get the exact words correct if you are you know if you're close as long as you're not saying something heretical <laughs> yeah. um you know misquoting it to the point that you're saying the opposite of what it means uh you know i think you're okay yeah <laughs> um another thing though that we should um and should remember that is related to that um misquoting or or are twisting the words of scripture to mean what they don't mean really is that we need to learn from Satan's tactics that we see in this. Satan knows scripture really, really, really well. Yep. And all of his temptations in this passage, we see they all connect to a passage, something in the scriptures that are said, and it's all from the Psalms and uh, for the most part. And he is, a master at taking the truth and spinning it just a little bit. Well, it's what you see in, in the temptation in Eden. I mean, going back to this parallel passage, not parallel passage, but the one that really helps us understand this one, that you see him go and he, he mixes some partial truths without right lies to Eve and Adam, who was there listening. 
that's what he loves doing. And it's so effective because it sounds this. A lot of false teaching does this today. Um, a lot of heretical teaching, it the the allure of it, and I think the fear, the greatest concern we should have as believers, and especially for us and others, is not that they're going to be led astray by blatant untruth that, you know, other world religions and so forth or whatever. I'm not as concerned about them as I am the false teachers within supposedly the camp of Christianity who will mix and something sounds good. But then the next thing is not. Yeah. Um, that's the, the greatest danger. That's what Satan was doing before. I think he's still using that tactic through, again, false teachers today. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this is why there is such a strong call to practicing discernment among believers. That um, Now, that doesn't mean that we practice discernment the way that um, certain types of blogs do um, because that's not discerning. That actually is a great example of very often of the kind of twisting that uh, you're talking about here. <laughs> um, but the but we want to be we want to be wise we want to understand scripture really really well so that we can we can recognize when when the errors appear yep now the final thing that we would encourage is is remembering um and which really is really really stems from that last thing that i said is that we want to study the bible as a whole um that eden provides import, an important understanding of this passage. Romans provides important insights to this passage as yeah. well. And that this passage helps inform them as well. Like we see those things all working together in the same way that we see how Satan used, used certain passages of scripture to try to tempt Jesus that we, that we can go back and we can go and read them and understand them more deeply in the um, in their context and see how they point to Jesus as well. Yeah, and as as anybody listening, knowing that we're with the Gospel Project, we're biased here. Of course, we love this, but we believe uh, this is the the best way, the proper way to study Scripture is to study as a whole to understand it in light of the big story of Scripture unfolding. So, yeah, this is another example of of a great passage where can you understand it in isolation? Yeah, you can. But man, when you bring, as you were saying, Genesis to bear, Genesis 3 to bear, when you bring Romans to bear, and when this comes to bear on Romans and, and going back and forth, it just makes us understand Scripture that much richer and more appropriately. All right. Well, Brian, I think that is a good place for us to wrap up for today. So thanks for chatting about this passage of Scripture. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.